having diversity and trust is similar to having diversity in ecosystem, whereby different forms of trust can buffer each other. Welcome to the Social Science of Public Good podcast, the project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this podcast, we attempt to make leading social science theories available and accessible for social change practitioners such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad. And I'm Yugasha. We are both PhD students in the Virginia Tech School of Public and International Affairs, interested in questions of how to build a better world. Excellent. Well, we're back talking about trust again. You guys, are you tired of it yet? No, but actually I can see why you're so fascinated by it. It is starting <laughs> to make sense to me now. A um, lot of great learning for me, for sure. And some of the things that I not previously thought of or found ways to articulate it. Who thought you could measure trust? Absolutely. I, I did have a, a connection with a colleague here in engineering recently who was like, well, how do you measure trust? You can't measure <laughs> trust. I'm like, well, the assumption you can't is uh, difficult. But then again, the assumption you have to measure it for it to matter is another assumption right. there. But well, so we've talked about, you know, a general discussion of trust. We've talked about trustworthiness. Anything that's particularly excited you or, or any doubts you're having at this point, you guys should? No doubts, but um, excited to see what we have coming. Um, and just fascinated about that, you know, question of measuring trust. Very good. Well, you know, this, uh, I kind of want to pose here as we get into this week's episode, this idea of whether there are different types of trust. And so do you think that the trust you have in a family member you've known for many years is different from someone that, you know, you mentioned the Uber driver before. Is that trust different to you, or does it come by in different ways, or does it kind of feel like the same thing in your mind? What an interesting question. It is very different. I don't know if I have the words to really um, define how those two, you know, types of trust are different, but I'm sure we're going to find out. Absolutely. And maybe that's not the right way to frame it, but I do think that, that there's something here about these different kinds of trust and that mm -hmm. we... At the very least, uh, this idea that you know we're calculating things and we're adding up. We've, we've had a number of folks, our first two guests, deal in the business world. And in the business world, you know, you've got your contract and your trust is in some ways mitigated by the contract. But it's also the same kind of things. Am I living up to what's expected of me? Mm -hmm. And that feels very different from a religious leader or a family member or something yeah. else. And so does that I mean there's a different kind of trust there? And is it is it rational or is it effective, feeling-based? Uh, I, I don't know, but we're, we're going to dig into some of those questions here. I've got a uh, Virginia Tech colleague here with us today, uh, Dr. Mark Stern, who's a faculty member at Virginia Tech Center for Leadership and Global Sustainability and a professor in Virginia Tech's Department of Forest Resources and Environmental Conservation. He's explored trust specifically within that framework of natural resource management and conservation and developed a trust ecology framework in which he seeks to bring different types of trust into conversation with each one another and, and build a broader understanding that goes beyond just that natural resource base. But uh, are we excited to talk to, to Mark today, you guys? Yes, very. Very good. Well, let's jump in. Dr. Stern, welcome to the Social Science Republic Good Podcast. Thanks, great to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you, you and I have known each other 
a while, Mark, and um, and I, I know a little bit about how you came to be interested in trust, but can you share a little bit about how you first came interested and why it continues to, the, the field of trust continues to interest you so much? Yeah, well, actually, this started while I was doing my doctoral research quite a while ago. Um, I was looking at conflicts between national parks and the people who live around them. And uh, I was assessing all these different factors to, one, assess people's attitudes toward the neighboring national parks, but also to figure out why they're behaving in the ways they behaved. So that was kind of the unique thing about the study. So I lived in these places for months at a time. It was ground-truthing people's actual actions, not just whether they liked a park or not. So on one side of the scale, there was opposition. Um, this would be like illegal hunting, uh, vandalism, taking park guards hostage, like all this stuff that park managers don't want people to do. And on the other side was support. So donations, publicly defending the park, volunteering, things like that, or changing behavior to comply with park rules. And I did this study in three really different national parks. So one was in the Great Smoky Mountains in the continental U.S., one was in the Caribbean, and the other was in southern Ecuador. And how are all these predictive variables? I was looking at economic issues, uh, social norms, uh, senses of enforcement, empowerment. And then almost as an afterthought and reading some more, I, I, I decided to add this trust question to it. It was a single question that I used in my interviews with folks. It was whether they trusted park managers to be fair and honest with the people living around there. And what I found was that question alone could predict, people's answer to that question, that is, could predict with over 80% accuracy who within a sample of hundreds of people were actively opposing a national park. So it overpowered economic concerns. It overpowered all this other stuff I measured. Um, so I was pretty happy at the time because I, at least I thought to ask a follow-up question, which was like, hey, so why do you feel the way that you feel <laughs> in terms of trusting park managers? And the answers were pretty striking because they, they were more social answers than they were sort of instrumental ones. So it had to do with whether they felt the park managers were, were nice people whether it seemed like they were linked in with the community in some way, whether they showed up, whether, whether it seemed like they were like listening when people spoke to them, rather than you know, some, some real dire economic conditions in some cases where people were being disadvantaged. So I think that's really what sparked my interest in trust, um, that it came out so powerfully that I wanted to learn a whole lot more. So that's that I kind of embarked on coming back from the field and reading everything I could. Like across a lot of different disciplines on how trust functions, what is it, and what are the different ways in which it comes about. In your work, you focus on uh, willingness to be vulnerable as part of the definition of trust. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit and also share how you define trust? Yeah, well, I would define it as a willingness to accept vulnerability in the face of uncertainty. Um, so for trust to be relevant, there needs to be some degree of risk, which in most of our relationships with people, there is. There's something that, that puts us at risk. Um, so I know that some folks define trust actually as an action or measure it that way. Um, I think of it more as a psychological state that precedes a potential action. Like We can act on our trust or not. But trust is that psychological state of being willing to accept vulnerability when there's some degree of uncertainty. A big part of your work has been the development of this trust ecology framework and uh, kind of based on a typology of trust. Can you just kind of give us a, a thousand foot overview of 
of how this developed and, and, and what it looks like? Yeah, well, this kind of was a result of years of, of thinking about this and reading and doing work in different countries and in different scenarios. And um, eventually I brought on a doctoral student named Kim Coleman and the two of us together kind of dripped up this, this framework. And it really came from the literature. So when I think about what trust ecology is, it's really just a reorganization of stuff that was already there in the literature that people knew. But we wanted to reorganize it in a way that we felt would be really useful to practitioners, particularly in natural resource management fields that we work in. Uh, so the way we were able to categorize different forms of trust was based on their antecedents. Where did they, how did they emerge? So we identified four distinct forms of trust. Uh, the first we call dispositional trust, which is actually similar to what other people might call general trust. And this just describes a general predisposition of an individual to, to be trusting or really skeptical or distrusting when you first meet them, right? So we all know that if, if anyone listening to this podcast thinks of themselves, you could usually answer this question, are you a generally trusting person such that when you meet somebody, their trust is yours unless they do something to lose it? Or are you on the other end of the spectrum? You meet somebody and uh, they're going to have to win your trust because you're not automatically trusting. So that's dispositional trust. And... As folks working in the field, trying to create collaborations, there's not much we can do about that one. It just sets a baseline for all other forms of trust to emerge. So it's mainly based on your personal experiences, stuff that's happened to you over your lifetime, uh, the family you grew up in, uh, traumas you've had. We all sort of land in this place. So dispositional trust is very slow changing. Um, and we can't expect as communicators or facilitators of, of meetings or, or processes to really affect it a whole lot. The other three forms of trust in trust ecology are actionable. So the first one we can talk about, we call rational trust. So when I ask a room of people, why do you trust others? Like this, especially if I'm in the United States or in like Western Europe, this is what people will answer. It'll fall into this category of rational trust. And this is basically the positive expectation of somebody's behaviors. So I'm going to guess how you're going to behave. And if I'm pretty confident that your behavior is going to benefit me, I trust you. So it's very exchange-based, but it's cognitive as well. I'm like making a prediction of your behavior and how that will influence me. So if we want to influence rational trust, this has to do with consistent performance, uh, keeping promises, being good at what we do. But it also has to do with some values alignment, right? Like if you're pretty confident in my behavior, but my behavior is that every time I see you, I'm going to give you a gut punch, that would be rational distrust, right? So each one of these forms can predict trust or distrust. The second form of trust is also an interpersonal form, but it recognizes that we're not all very rational beings all the time. Um, we're also pretty emotional. So we call this affinitive trust, and it's based on an affinity that we have for potential trustee. So this can develop in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's intuitive, right? If I meet you and you remind me of my little sister, or like my best friend, like instantly I might have this knee-jerk reaction to like you, right? To have an affinity for you. And therefore, your, my trust is yours to lose in that case, right? It's like an affinitive trust right off the bat. Um, it could also be distrust in that way, right? You remind me of my least favorite politician, right? If we start out from like affinitive distrust. But it can also be built or eroded based on our interactions. So typically, this has to do with emotional connections we've made, assumptions of similarity, 
like I assume similar values with you. We've had shared positive experiences, like we've gone out and drank coffee together, or even that you just nod and look me in the eye and smile when we talk. It seems like you're listening. Um, unless it just could be a response to charisma. Right? We've all met people who like we just instantly like. So if we want to build this, it has to do with active listening, responsiveness, like demonstrations of caring, uh, creating social environments where we can get to know each other, exposing shared values. So this is very different because it's not really calculative. Right? I'm not predicting how you'll behave, thinking about whether that benefits me. I trust you just because I like you. And so that's like a big difference between this rational and affinity trust. So those two forms of trust within trust ecology are really trust of an entity. And it could be trust in an individual, or it could be trust in a group or an organization, because organizations can also exhibit these traits, right? Like, oh, a trustworthy organization, we can all think about how they might be rational, or we like them because of their branding or, or something they do. The third type of trust takes into account the system in which our interactions take place. So we call the systems-based trust, or in like natural resource management processes or planning processes, sometimes we call it procedural trust. So this has to do with the set of rules we agree upon within the setting in which we're interacting. So we could have positive trust building systems, and those typically have a number of characteristics where we, we might jointly develop procedures. Um, they're transparent. We all know what the rules are. There should be rules for what happens if we if we break our agreed upon procedures. Um, in in practice, sometimes what this looks like is the developing of a charter. If it's a formal collaborative group, like hey, here's how we're going to engage. Here's how we're going to talk to each other. Here's how we're going to make decisions. Here's what happens when we disagree. And there's all kinds of creative ways to do this. Um, for example, in some of these groups we've worked with, these collaborative forest landscape restoration programs, which are dozens of stakeholders across thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres in some cases, they decided, hey, when we disagree and we just can't come to some consensus, we'll actually submit a minority report to the deciding official along with what the majority thought. And that way everyone's at least heard. Right? Um, there's also um, roles for facilitators in this. So if somebody breaks some rules about how we communicate with each other. Um, the facilitator's there to call them out on it. We can decide, like, well, how many strikes until you're out? <laughs> so if we agree on this stuff ahead of time, we create a system in which we all feel a little bit less vulnerable. I don't have to necessarily have rational or affinitive trust for you. As long as I trust that we're going to abide by these rules, our vulnerability is decreased. And that enables us to collaborate with each other, be open with each other, and maybe get somewhere in terms of collaboration. So what we found, or what we've been finding in all the research we've done on these different forms of trust, is that a collaboration or a group working together can be successful in the short term with any one form of trust. And we've probably all experienced this before. Like, say you have a, just a really charismatic leader, and everyone has affinitive trust for that person. You just love them so much. Well, what happens when they get promoted and hired away, right? Like, the group can be dead in the water if there's not trust elsewhere in the network or other forms of trust. You can even think about it in terms of a, um, a dyadic relationship between just a truster and a trustee, right? So let's say Brad and I are working, we're working together on a project, and you promised me that you would have the introduction written by tomorrow. And tomorrow comes and you didn't do it. 
that's a rational trust failure, right? Like your performance, that was a performance failure. Well, if we like each other, we're all right. We'll keep going. The opposite's true too, right? Like if I really don't like Brad, <laughs> but he's really good at this, like, well, I can suffer through like the affinitive issues and the performance will help bolster it. What we find, though, in a in sort of long-term collaboration where there's disturbances over and over again and failures and lots of stuff happens, is that having diversity and trust is similar to having diversity in an ecosystem, whereby different forms of trust can buffer each other. So take a typical, this is why we call it trust ecology, right? So take an ecosystem, some storm comes in and a bunch of pollinators are wiped out. Well, other pollinators can come in, fill that ecological niche while the system gets rebuilt. It's the same that we're seeing in these bigger collaborative groups. If something happens to shock the system, well, if there's other forms of trust, they can fill that gap and buffer the system. So what we've been seeing is for a collaboration to be long-lasting and resilient to disturbance, uh, we need adequate stores of all three of these actionable forms of trust, rational, definitive, and systems-based. Well, thank you for walking us through these uh, different forms of trust and also giving a glimpse of how these uh, different types um, interact with each other. I could not help but notice that while you were walking us through that, you were also mentioning distrust, like affinitive trust and affinitive distrust. Um, how do you define distrust? Is it the same thing as lack of trust? No, <laughs> it's a great question. So a lack of trust is when we, we lack information to be able to make any, any sort of assessment or judgment, right? So oftentimes that's a pretty healthy place to be, particularly in my field, when you know, we're having a collaborator, we're talking about some action that can take place in the landscape. Um, it, it makes us question things and deliberations can be better because we want to really get in there. Sometimes we're motivated by a lack of trust to get involved. Distrust is a little more active. So it's the expectation that something bad will happen as a result. Okay, so th I, this could be a little bit different. So the way I just described it is more of a rational thing, right? Like it's the expectation that you're going to do me harm. Um, in an affinitive term, it's active dislike for somebody, right? So it doesn't have to be the expectation, but it's a negative affinity, right? And for the system, it's explicitly thinking the system is going to prevent you from good outcomes or it's going to guarantee bad outcomes for you. So this is active expectation of something negative is where distrust would come in in terms of definitions. The, your research has been in these kind of collaborative group settings and, and stuff like this, and you've seen how the system matters. And, you know, from a facilitator's perspective in that meeting, the rules that the group sets up are very important. But I think, you know, this... When I'm thinking about the systems level, hearing you talk, it, it, it also operates on all kinds of different scales, right? Like, so the system that you set up in your own marriage determines how, you know, certain things there, as well as, you know, our, our, our national governance systems impact how we see things there. But, you know, I think we're uh, to politicize this ever so slightly that we can come back from. But, you know, if we look at a system such as, potentially a lack of trust now developing in a long-lasting system such as that of the Supreme Court mm -hmm. for the United States. Uh, how do you go about reconfiguring or rebuilding that kind of, I mean, I, you know, in the affinity set sense, you know, you can always 
try to be nicer and more likable or, you know, may not work, but you can try it. And, and in the, and in the, the rational sense, you can always try to perform better. But in the, in the system space, when we're used to these things lasting a period of time, they're always going to break down at some point. And kind of how do you go about figuring out how to move forward in that, in that environment? Yeah, the scale of all of this is like an absolutely critical question, right? So the scale at which we've studied trust very closely tends to be the scale of place-based governance initiatives, right? So people are in a room and they're able to interact with each other. Um, what you're talking about is sort of this distant kind of you know, trust in government sort of question writ large. Um, so there... We, I think we really start to drift into other theory that that inevitably interacts with trust in really powerful ways. And for me, we've been doing work in this area too, really in identity theory. And what a lot of folks call tribalism or identity politics, things of these nature, that require a whole different way of thinking <laughs> if you want to influence it. And I mean, there are certain levels at which it gets increasingly difficult. I mean, if you're talking about the levels of political elites, appointments to the Supreme Court, I mean, it's difficult to feel empowered on that level, right? Uh, but the level at which most of us work, um, we've been looking at different initiatives to try and get past what we call identity threats, which are really closely related to distrust, right? So what an identity threat is, let's say... I'm a strong conservative, and I feel very powerfully about the Second Amendment and gun rights. And Brad, you walk into a meeting, and you start using language um, about you know, the importance of, of restrictions on guns. Immediately, I'm identifying you as someone that's outside my group, right? You're in the out group for me. And it's going to be very hard for me to talk to you because I'm going to make all sorts of assumptions about you. Ah, it's, you know, it's a snowflake liberal. They don't understand. They don't believe in the Constitution. This is probably somebody that voted for Hillary Clinton. I mean, it just spirals to the point where it so clashes with my personal identity that I'm not even going to be able to talk to you. It's going to seem useless to me. So if we're in that sort of an environment, which we are a lot these days, it feels like, um, there's some stuff that has to happen first, I think, before you can even start thinking about trust. Because we're, so, we're miles away from getting to somewhere where we can like, develop trust. So there's some barriers we need to break down. And I don't know if you want to go there, but I mean, we can go into some of these identity theory ideas that, that are, I see as like precursors to trust building. Um, you know, the trust ecology stuff is like, yeah, be really good at what you do. Try and, like, try and be likable. Um, create a system in which like, you all feel protected. Um, we can't really start on that stuff until we break down those threats that we feel when we're encountering somebody who seems like a completely different species from us in like everything they believe. A metaphor that I really like here, and I think this is really related to what I would call affinitive trust, is uh, Jonathan Haidt's work um, where he uses this metaphor of the elephant and the rider. And it, it, there's other folks who have different metaphors for this. Um, like Kahneman, for example, calls it the system one and system two parts of your brain. But the elephant and the rider is a nice way to think about it. The elephant is your intuition. It's your gut reaction. It's your, what immediately you feel when you see someone or hear a message. 
And as soon as you hear a message that you like, that is sort of goes in line with your own values and thinking, your elephant leans right into that. It's very easy and you go right along. If you're walking into that room and you're going to confront me about my beliefs about the Second Amendment, my elephant immediately starts leaning away, right? So the elephant's your intuition. The rider is your, is your cognitive brain. It's your, the cognitive part of your brain, right? So it takes quite a bit of effort for that rider to pull the elephant back for me to actually consider what it is you're saying to me. So if we want to have an entryway into getting towards somewhere that might Maybe it's not full trust, but at least it's not full distrust where we can't talk to each other. We, we, there's a couple things we need to do. We either need to keep the elephant from leaning or we need to engage the rider so they have better control over the elephant. And in our lab here, we've been doing some research and there's other folks all around the country and elsewhere doing research on a couple things that, that are meant to lessen identity threat such that that immediate hard pull of this many ton elephant isn't quite so strong so that we can actually have an interaction. And what those tend to be, um, in fact, we're, we've been doing some research on this right now and we're, we're hoping this, we have a proposal in to do some more work. Um, one promising area is in, in the realm of self-affirmation theory. And this, is, um, this idea has been around for quite a while. Um, some of the key writers in it are uh, Jeffrey Cohen and, and his co-author, um, whose last name is Sherman. And what they say is, if people can first be identified, first be reminded that their self-worth is much bigger than the particular issue at hand, like the thing that triggered them, right? Well, then they might be more receptive in the moment because they won't feel quite as threatened. So a nice way to imagine this is like, imagine you're going to like a traditional couch psychiatrist, right? And you're going to lie down and they're going to talk about some horrible trauma in your life. One of the things they might do, and this is a traditional self-affirmation, is they'll give you a list of positive attributes. Um, and they'll ask you to choose one that's important to you and that you think you've exemplified as important in your life. And it's a writing exercise. They'll ask you to write for 10 minutes about a time when you exemplified that trait. It could be a positive trait like compassion, generosity, friendship, or it even could be something like athleticism or <laughs> musicality, right? But it's something positive. And folks who've tried these self-affirmations, what they see is people are more willing to talk about the challenging thing after they've been reminded that like, oh, yeah, like my self-worth is, it might be tied up a little bit in this trauma or this issue, but it's much bigger than that. So some folks have been experimenting with this, putting people through self-affirmations and exposing them to some political messaging. And what they find, it's not huge effect sizes, but what they're finding is people are more open to the rational and logical parts of the argument than, the, than just the emotional parts. And people in the control group who haven't gone through a self-affirmation tend to focus on the emotional or normative pieces right off the bat. So they're triggered. Their identity threat is up. So we've been thinking in the, in the settings in which we work, which are these collaborative or not collaborative, they're like public meetings around like contentious issues, right? Could we approximate something like this in an icebreaker where we remind people that like, oh yeah, like your self-worth is much bigger than this little thing that we're about to talk about here. Will people be more open-minded? 
So what would that look like? Um, so imagine putting a bunch of these positive words up on the screen and just asking people like, hey, I want you to just take a moment before we start today. Think about your closest friends and family, people who know you best. Pick one of the words up here you think they would use to describe you that makes you feel really good about yourself. And just take a moment to think about a time when you really exemplified that. Maybe they write it on an index card, just put it in the back pocket. And that's it. And then off we go, we have the debate. So we've tried this um, in a couple experiments. And what we find is people's open-mindedness and willingness to hear new information. Again, small effects. These are just like small effects. People tend to be a little bit more open-minded after they've gone through something like that. And you can imagine, you know, similar things that facilitators do at the beginning of meetings that help people just lessen that heat, that identity threat that they might feel. Um, I was talking with um, Steve Daniels a few years ago, who's a master facilitator, been doing this a long time, he's written books on this. One of the things he told me was when he runs these really contentious meetings, he doesn't allow people to do the standard name and affiliation introduction. Because what happens when you do that is immediately everyone's looking around and they're going, ally, enemy, ally, enemy, ally, enemy, and they're just strategically planning for how they're going to win. So instead, um, one of their favorite openings is just like, hey, we're just going to go around the room, say your first name, and tell us one thing that you're proud of in your personal life that's happening in the last month or so. Like, it works best if people say like, oh, my kid won their softball tournament or something like that, right? Just to humanize a little bit. So that has to do with you know, trying to just calm the elephant down a little bit such that you can engage the rider. You know, other things that um, we've been working on have a lot to do with language that's used. So sometimes we're not coming in and blazing and about to argue about, you know, gun rights or something like that. Instead, it's just the language we use and the signals we send almost unintentionally. So here again, Height's work is really interesting. Uh, he and a number of colleagues have developed this uh, theory called Moral Foundations Theory. And um, basically, folks have used this theory to show that liberals in the United States tend to communicate in a very specific way about issues they care about a whole lot. And by communicating in that way, they're sending signals immediately about their entire political set of beliefs to conservatives. And conservatives do the same thing as well. So like we have expectations about people's entire uh, value system just by a few words we hear them say. And we, Sure, we've all thought about this, like words that trigger you. They trigger you for a reason because they signal some outgroup that really bothers you. So we've been doing some work on that, sort of reframing the way people communicate with each other to not trigger each other with the words they use. And again, what we find there is it kind of does something similar. Rather than changing somebody's mind and winning them over to your argument, it just enables us to have a more, a more rational conversation. With each other. We can actually hear each other a little bit because we're not immediately, you know, threatened with our elephant rearing back or leaning away. So I mean I, I can go a little further into that stuff if you'd like, but we're probably off the topic of trust at this point. But uh these are all things that like without them trust is kind of a, a little bit down the road. Because we can't expect to develop that if we can't even talk to each other. So when you brought up the Supreme Court, it's immediately where our mind went. It's like, oh, that's such an emotional issue for so many of us. You gotta 
bring the emotions down a little bit before we can even think about getting towards trust. A lot of important lessons here for uh, our practitioners, for sure. Um, I wanted to go a little bit back on um, uh, earlier when we were talking about rational trust and how you defined it about uh, evaluating performance or uh, some sort of historical information that you have about the about the trustee. Um, I was wondering if evaluating that information, the quality of that information and the quantity of that information, how does that affect uh, somebody's ability to trust? Hmm. Oftentimes, it's not really much information at all. I mean, we can make a rational assessment on almost nothing. Um, and I'm sure other folks on this podcast have talked about reputation and just reputational trust. Like, I don't, I don't need to know you to have an idea about what I expect you might do um, based on what I've heard about you, based on what other people have said about you. Um, on the other hand, I might have a huge body of evidence. You know, if we look at if you're politically engaged, you actually follow what senators and Congress people do. Um, there's a huge body of evidence on which to weigh whether we rationally trust or not. So, I mean, right in the definition of trust is that word uncertainty, at least my definition. Willingness to accept vulnerability in the face of uncertainty. The larger that uncertainty is, the, the bigger risk we have when we trust. So the more information we have to make a rational trust assessment, that starts to that gap starts to narrow, and we can feel more confident in our trust assessment. Now, that's a very rational way to say it because honestly, we can feel just as confident when we have almost no information. That has to do with how you know how passionate we are about an issue, the context in which we're in, the other people who are engaged. So there's so many factors that are really interacting that it's quite difficult. So I work in the field of science communication quite a lot. Um, and this is where I feel like a lot of communicators get it wrong. When, when somebody's not hearing the message that the climate is changing and we should be concerned about it, a lot of science communicators just throw more facts, you know, like, more science, just pile it on as high as you can go, right? <laughs> it's, just like, it's, it's not very helpful if I don't trust you as a person. Right, so this is, that's actually maybe a good example of you know rational versus affinitive trust. Like if I don't trust the scientist to begin with, if I don't like you, or, or there's something about you that signals outgroup to me, it doesn't matter how many facts you have. The rational part of this is not coming into the picture because the affinitive part is too strong. So there's always these interactions between these forms of trust that that get really challenging, which again is why I think when we play with this trust ecology framework and I work with nonprofit organizations and government agencies, and we talk about this, um, we've even developed very simple check sheets, like worksheets. It's like, okay, any relationship you're in, think about the three actionable forms of trust. How are you doing on each? And it's uncanny how often, especially like small nonprofits who are trying to work on, let's say an integrated conservation development project in a village or something like that, get caught up in one type. Like, they're caught up in proving how good their agroforestry project's going to be. All rational stuff. Like, here's the returns. Here's all the facts. Here's everything. At the expense of, like, building a personal relationship with the people they want to work with. And they're, they're sort of stuck wondering, why isn't this working? Like, we have all the data and all the facts on, like, why this is really the right thing for this village. And, and all it takes sometimes is writing these three forms of trust 
on the board and being like, how you doing in each one of these? For an aha moment to happen, it's like, oh, oh yeah. Yeah, maybe we should maybe we should work on that other piece a little bit. Or the system piece, like, well, how long will you be around to support us? Like, we could plant these things. But what happens if something goes wrong right down the road? Um, how do we know you're not taking advantage of us? Like, how are decisions going to be made here if we come to a crisis point? Like, all of those things up front can make a huge difference. Sorry, I, I'm not sure I took that answer where you wanted it to go. <laughs> I have a quick follow-up uh, on that, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if there's, like, a hierarchy of uh, in the types of trust that you're suggesting in terms of you go about building affinitive first and then move on to the other part. So this is just based on context or, you know. I, I really think it does matter on con- matter what the context is, but it also really depends on individuals. Like just think of yourself and if you're listening to this, think of yourself. Like how do you typically base your trust assessments? Are you a rational truster? Are you an affinitive truster? Do you need to think through the system? And is it always the same? Like, if I were to ask you to trust someone to write a chapter of a report, would that be the same? Would you base your trust assessment the same way than if I asked you to trust someone to give your daughter a ride home from a party? Uh, probably not, right? The, the, the order is going to shift around a little bit. We have found some sequencing that seems to be kind of common in the places that, in which we work, you know, in these natural resource conflict settings. And it's interesting because the sequencing and the scale shifts over time. So what we find is we work in places where there's typically been long-standing conflict. And the first type of trust that seems necessary to make anything happen is affinitive trust, actually. And it's usually just between like two or three people or entities where they're just so dang tired of stalemates at meetings that they finally invite somebody to go have a coffee or a beer or like, hey, let's just sit down on the bench over there and just talk. And they start to share that they both are frustrated. Wow, we have something in common. We're both frustrated by this. Okay, so like typically there is this like affinitive thing that happens that like breaks a cycle. But then when you scale up to a whole group setting, like all the different entities and stakeholders that are engaged, recruiting folks isn't always based on affinity. It can be based on almost anything, right? So it could be based on, let's say, I love Brad. I've known him forever. And he tells me, he's the one who invites me. Like, look, I talked to this other person. I talked to you, Gasha. Like, I think, I think we should get together in a different way. All right, that could be affinitive. I love Brad. I trust him. I'll come. Um, or for some folks who aren't as intimately connected, what we found is systems are really important to focus on very early in a multi-stakeholder collaboration. So how do I create the environment that feels safe for people to come and actually be more vulnerable than they have been, have been in the past? Right? A lot of these places where we work, people come in, they stick to their positions, right? There shall never be a tree cut on the national forest. Or we need off-road vehicle parks everywhere on the National Forest. We need roads or whatever it might be, like they've got their position. Um, so what we're trying to do in these settings is, well, can we divorce them from the position and kind of get them to focus more on goals? Like, why do they hold the position they hold? 
Do they care about ecosystem integrity? Do they care about recreation? Do they care about economics? Once you get it to that level beneath the position, down like to what we call interests, there's all sorts of space for innovative things to happen. But to get there, people need to trust each other to share their underlying interests. So we found, we've worked with um, the Collaborative Forest Landscape Restoration Program for a number of years. This is a program, the Forest Service administers it. There are about a couple dozen projects across the country, and there are hundreds of thousands of acres, multiple jurisdictions, multiple stakeholders. Um, a lot of them are dealing with really complex issues. Timber harvest, catastrophic wildfire, recreational conflicts, etc. And what we found is the ones that are most successful at like moving projects forward and coming to agreement and actually feeling like their work is going somewhere spent a lot of time building a system that they trusted up front. You get an external facilitator in. And then one example, an external facilitator came in and they spent almost the entire first year doing nothing but developing agreements for how they were going to interact. They created a charter, rules for membership. Um, how are we going to interact with each other? What happens when we disagree? How are decisions made? Um, how do we do work? A lot, a lot of time. Contrast that with another group. They actually had a little bit less conflict to start. The, that other one was very conflicted at the beginning. This other, everyone sort of knew each other. They more or less got along. They disagreed on some stuff, but it wasn't like the super hot space. So they decided, you know what, let's just start, we'll start small. We'll start on the issues that we all sort of agree on already. And those small wins will, will just ramp us up. They'll make us feel good and we'll do more and more as we go. So they didn't pay much attention to a system. What happened there, to make a long, very long story really short, is a conflict emerged, not on the project they were working on, but on land that was adjacent to the project. And boy, it really got fired really fast. And their entire collaborative broke down for like a couple of years it took to rebuild so they can get to work back together. They didn't really have any, any procedures or rules in place for dealing with disagreement in some meaningful way. So I even incorporate this into my classes. When I have students do group work, I put forth trust ecology, explain to them, look, there's these different forms of trust. And what I want you to do, this is going to feel really strange and awkward to you, but it's worth it, trust me. <laughs> I want you to tell me how you're going to develop and maintain all three forms of these actionable trust in your groups because you're going to work together for the whole semester. It's going to be a lot more fun if you like each other and trust each other. What are you going to do? And uh, yeah, it feels awkward. Just like that one group that I expressed, you know, failed. It felt weird. They knew each other. They didn't need to waste their time on this. Let's get going. But they really paid the price by not spending that time on systems up front. So if we start with this to go back to the original question, we might start with an affinitive connection that just enables people to come to the table. We need to then build out a system such that once we're at the table, we can actually interact in a productive way. That helps us to see the rational part. Aha, I can start to see how we might actually get something done that's meaningful here. So this interacts with a lot of other ideas. Some of the stuff that we use comes out of a famous book called Getting to Yes. By Fisher and Urey originally, it's uh, the Harvard Negotiation Project, um, which also speaks to like systems-based trust, and it has a lot to do with that getting beyond people's positions, you know, either road or no road. To well, why would you? Why do you want a road or not? You know, what's the underlying interest? If we can lay those up, or even just write them up on a on a whiteboard somewhere, or right, we care about the local economy, 
We care about recreation access. We care about ecosystem integrity, whatever it might be. If everyone in the room can agree like, yeah, all those things matter. Well, then anytime we're thinking about a decision, we can look at, at that whiteboard and be like, well, how would it affect each of those things? You can see how that de-escalates this distrust issue because we already agreed those things were important. Now we can like stand shoulder to shoulder and look at it rather than being face-to-face -face confrontational, arguing for our position. I'm, I want to take us down a little bit of a different road here, which is to question uh, uh, too much trust. So you've stated that there is, you know, we want to develop trust and as a social change practitioner, you want people to trust you because you know it leads to positive outcomes. But we also know that too much trust can also uh, have diminishing returns slash even negative returns. So can you speak a little bit about what happens when uh, groups are too trusting of one another? Yeah, well, complacency is your, is your main concern, right? There's all sorts of reasons why people don't show up to be civically engaged. A lot of them have to do with like your period in life, you've got kids and you're busy. But it could also happen where, geez, if I completely trust every federal official to do their job perfectly, why would I ever bother showing up, right? Unless I have an academic interest in what they're doing, right? But if I trust them, like, why do I need to be there? So if people don't show up because they're so trusting, well, we really have a deficit of diverse ideas and creativity, right? There's a lot of reasons why we do public involvement. Um, I think an easy way to think about it, and this comes from some of our work we've done with the Forest Services, you know, public involvement, you could see it as just a procedural requirement, right? Like, okay, the National Environmental Policy Act requires that we do it. Lots of acts require that we do that. But there's also like really meaningful reasons for doing it. So in our research, we've identified that, well, sometimes there's substantive reasons to do it. And this is what um, laws like the National Environmental Policy Act actually focus on. They say the reason to involve the public is because they have knowledge that you may not have. I don't care what kind of ologist or scientist or planner you are. People know the land sometimes and they need to tell you. It's in my field and the environmental field. So legally, that's the reason why in my field they do public involvement. But when you think about public lands, which I work on a lot, like everyone owns those. Like there's also normative reasons why like your value should matter too, not just your knowledge, right? So there's reason to think, well, we should all have a say in how these places are managed. Maybe we have really good ideas embedded within that. And then from an agency perspective, you could think about it also just from an instrumental perspective, right? Like, well, it sure is easier to do my job if everyone's not mad at me. <laughs> so if I get them involved up front and we can deal with any conflict up front to kind of come to some agreement, it's going to be easier to do my job, right? Rather than, well, I'm just going to do it. Everyone trusted me. And then all of a sudden, oops, did the wrong thing and everyone's mad. Now I have a much bigger problem on my hands than if I didn't engage people. So it's kind of fascinating. We did a study of hundreds of what we call NEPA processes. These are processes that are mandated by the National Environmental Policy Act. When you're going to do anything on the public lands, before you do it, you have to create, you basically have to assess what the likely social and environmental impacts are and make them public. And this is the way that the public engages. And we did uh, surveys of the leaders of these processes. And we, those four things I mentioned, you know, procedural requirement only, instrumental reasons, normative reasons, or substantive reasons, we ask them, like, hey, why do you do public involvement? 
And those who believe that public involvement was merely a legal requirement, their processes were more likely to end up in appeals and litigation um, to worsen public relations and less likely to actually get to implementation on the landscape than when the leader actually believed in any of these other reasons for doing public involvement. Like, yeah, it actually matters. You want people here because if they come, your project is better. Uh, so, yeah, to come back to the original question, we don't really want a complacent public and we don't really want complacency in anything we work on because we, there's just this wealth of knowledge and creativity that we're, we're missing out on and values that might be important for us to consider as well. How would you suggest social change practitioners understand these different types of trust and uh, the importance of it in their work? Yeah, I, well, I think I, I kind of hinted at this before. You know, whenever going into some social change effort, you know, one of the first things that, that you might learn if you were in a master's program focused on this would be like, well, you should really do a stakeholder analysis or an assessment of some sort. Like, who are the people and groups engaged? Right? So sometimes that just happens to be very simplistic. It's like, okay, who are the people with power? What's their degree of influence? In other words, that's the power part. Um, how engaged are they? And you know, what's their stake also? Like how, how does it impact them? Which, which sometimes is like more of a justice issue, right? Because there's people with no power who are impacted very heavily. So it's kind of a values call. But I would argue, yeah, you, you should care about those people too, right? So sometimes it's a very simplistic, you know, two by two or two by two by three table or something that you create. I would argue that you really need to start thinking about as you approach, once you've done this preliminary stakeholder analysis that lets you sort of see the players within the arena in which you're working, is to really start thinking, okay, how does trust work in this setting? And I think the trust ecology framework is, there's plenty of frameworks that are good. I think it's particularly helpful here because it brings you to understanding the baseline, where everyone's starting from. It gives you two interpersonal, or interpersonal may not be the right word, but it's like inter-entity, right? Because the truster, the trustor, the person trusting, is typically an individual or a small group of people. They can place their trust in another individual, an organization, but that's rational and affinitive trust there. Like, how are those dyadic relationships? But trust ecology then really focuses you on the system. Like, how, do, how can you create a system in which people are willing to accept vulnerability? Given that there might be distrust here, there might be a lack of trust, there might be some trust, there might be like clicks where there's high trust and other places where there's not. So I think mapping out a network in this way, even in a very basic way, is pretty important. And it can get you to action pretty quickly, right? So when I've worked with this framework with folks in very different cultures and contexts, being urban, rural, conservative, liberal in the U.S. or internationally, um, in Indonesia, South America, other places, the framework makes a lot of sense. It's very simple. Oh, there's just these four things, as long as you understand what they are. Where it gets interesting is the actions that you would take to build each type of trust are quite different in different cultures. Like the way I'm going to build definitive trust in like a back holler in Appalachia where I live is quite different than how I might do it in like Tokyo or how I'd do it in New York City, right? Like the things you would do are different, but the, the principle is really the same. Okay, we want to build some affinity. We want to show that like we're good at what we do. 
and we're aligned. And we want to show that our we want to create a system that feels like we all own it. Right? That we all have the opportunity to to make it fair, to make it transparent, and we all have the power to change it if it's not working. I haven't found a context yet in which it hasn't been helpful to think through it that way. Very good. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Mark. We'll kind of wrap up with a question about resources. So folks are looking for more information. We can link to your several of your pieces in the description here, but are there places you would recommend folks go to explore and, and learn more about trust as a, as a practitioner? Yeah, I'd probably, I'd have to think about that a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, the, the folks that you've had in this podcast are all great. <laughs> I'm so reading what they've written too. And uh, I think that when it comes to uh, frameworks around trust, there's lots of different ways to look at it, right? And, and they're all pretty useful. And I think that's a real value like I don't really, I don't see them as in conflict with each other. You know, another really well framework, uh, a really well known framework is the ability, benevolence, and integrity framework, which is really about trustworthiness, right? Like how do you exude trustworthiness? That's really helpful too. So I think trying all of these onto your situation is really helpful. Um, sometimes one might work better than another, given your, given your case. Um, I would say if, if folks are really interested in, the identity theory stuff. I really do like Jonathan Haidt's work. Um, find that it's been really helpful for thinking through like identity threat and, and he writes in a way that's pretty accessible. There's lots of great people working in that field too. Um, but yeah, if I come up with any more, I'll send them to you. Very good. Very good. Well, any final questions, Yugasha? Uh, that was great. Thank you, Professor Stan. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. Thanks for having me. Your pleasure. Well, Yugasha, we just got a chance to talk with Dr. Mark Stern, who I have immense respect for, and uh, I'm so happy we could have him on. But what do you think? Uh, did you enjoy the conversation? Absolutely. Um, a little earlier, we were talking about, you know, having a, the a kind of trust that we have with our family members, and then again with Uber drivers. Um, it can be rational, irrational, or feeling-based, and uh, it it makes a lot of more sense now talking to Professor Stone. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think his framework is very handy here. I don't, uh, you know, I don't know that we know exactly whether it's the full framework, but as mm -hmm. with all these things, they're constantly evolving. But he's kind of identified these four types of trust, which I think are helpful at the very least in, in terms of this kind of rational cognitive side, this effective side, and then the systems-based side. Is there one of those that stands out to you that feels like the place where you're most interested in learning more? Well, I think um, rational trust maybe, and the way he dealt with it coming from a natural resource management um, kind of background and seeing the relevance of um, that type of trust in, in the work that he's done with different communities really, really stood out to me. It's it's interesting. I you know he and I have talked about this before, but this idea of effective trust is very interesting mm -hmm. to me. And I think, uh, but I think the biggest takeaway, in some ways, for me is this idea that we kind of had with with our first two guests, Dr. Mollering and and Dr. Mayer, that all you can really do is try to signal your trustworthiness. You can only kind of work in right. that rational space. And I think Mark has challenged us to think, no, that there are other ways you can seek to build 
both trustworthiness and trust in terms of, you know, uh, you can try to be a, a more appealing person to be around. You can try to be nicer and more engaging with people. You can build systems that, that uh, allow other people to engage with you, that they put kind of guide rails in place that are helpful there. So I think just that, that takeaway that you don't have to just focus and the rational trust space is interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. I also appreciated the way he he defined uh, distrust and part it's not the lack of trust, but disregard of expectations. And we've talked about expectations a lot. We've talked about vulnerability a lot. Um, and I do not think we always comprehend that in every circumstance. It is important to understand the distinction, especially if you're a social change practitioner working with the community. Absolutely. Well, and, uh, you know, I think we've kind of talked, uh, and this might be a refrain that's rather annoying to social change practitioners mm -hmm. at this point, because we're kind of, uh, there's an inherent criticism that I suppose we don't mean to levy in this space, but often we wind up doing so that, but, uh, you know, I think there's a tendency that I find myself falling into to suggest that, you know, people will trust us just because we have the best ideas or trust mm -hmm. us just because we've delivered in the past. And we've all met folks working in social change that are jerks. Uh, and I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways here for me is that you can't, uh, no matter how good your ideas are, no matter how uh, uh, much you think people should trust you based on what you've done in the past, uh, if you're a jerk about it, or if you don't build systems that, that support that, uh, it's going to be very hard to generate trust in that space. Yeah, I think anyone who has spent time uh, doing field work can attest to that. There is a little bit of homework that everyone needs to do, and it is very, very important. And Professor Stern alluded to that when he mentioned stakeholder analysis and working out the degree of influence or the degree of impact these different stakeholders have. Um, yeah, I think we should be we should be thinking about that as well. Absolutely. Was there is there one biggest takeaway that you think you'll be able to use most in your own work kind of moving forward? Stakeholder analysis, for sure. Um, and I've read about this in different, um, you know, journals or whether in different uh, books which talk about research methods. Uh, but I still think that we're just scratching at the surface. And I do think that the theory of trust has um, helped me understand that piece a little bit better. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of intrigued by this this takeaway idea of uh, how we do this authentically and, and meaningfully. That it's uh, feels very exploitative. Some of the things that we've mm -hmm. talked about in terms of doing things in order to get people to trust us, and I don't. Um, I think that's kind of okay, um, right. but I think it's also important to realize that people can see through that and that 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 effective layer, whether or not, and to go back to our conversation from last week, I think that benevolence piece is is wrapped into this right. uh, affinity piece that we really want people to like us. And part of people liking us is us, them thinking that we care about them. Right. And the easiest way to get someone to think that we care about them is to actually care about them. Because if you're, if you're just faking it, uh, it's going to break down sooner or later. And mm -hmm. so this, uh, this idea of authenticity and genuineness, I, I find really compelling here. This, uh, and I'm hopeful that that's the way that this is going to be taken in terms of, yes, there is some 
uh, utilitarianness to this conversation, but that it should also ask us to reflect and, and suggest that we need to recognize the humanity of the people that we're engaging right. with. Yeah, well, I could have said that better, Brad. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could have, but uh, we'll uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. But uh, any final takeaways uh, today, Yugasha? Well, uh, another thing that we were talking about was building all kinds of trust, and I found that very, very challenging just to think about it and the amount of work that needs to be put in to build each and every kind of trust is just the magnitude of that work just kind of, I don't know, it's, it just sounds <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. And I think it's also, uh, I, I take great um, comfort in some ways from Mark's understanding of systems-based trust, because mm-hmm. I think that there's a, you know, he talked about generalized trust you really can't do very much about. It's going right. to change very slowly over time. And, you know, there's this charisma piece that we just don't all have charisma. We're, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to run into people all the time that just don't like us for some reason. Right. And we're always going to violate the rational trust at some point. There's always, we're always going to screw up at some point. But this idea that maybe we can mitigate all that by building systems that, that can perpetuate that, I think it, I'm hopeful that that's the place where I'm like, okay, well, I don't have to be charismatic all the time. And mm-hmm. I, I can fail from time to time but if we build the right systems then maybe that's okay right absolutely well very good any final words today you guys i think that was great and uh i'm looking forward to you know delving deeper into this and uh to some of the resources also that professor stern mentioned and i'm sure it's going to be personally very helpful for my research Absolutely. Same here. And uh, next time we'll be back to talk a little bit about trust repair, what happens when it, uh, when, when there are trust violations. Uh, but uh, thank you so much as always, you guys. Thanks, Brad. Thanks.